Hello everybody and welcome to uh, this latest edition of Super Teams podcast. Uh, it's me, Jeremy Holt, here with uh, David Warner. Um, good to see you, David. Uh, good to talk to you. Hello, yeah. And uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about the Ryder Cup. Okay, so this episode we're going to focus in on the Ryder Cup and what we've decided to do in today's episode is rather than have as free-ranging a conversation as we often do, we've decided to focus in on a particular aspect of what we might learn from a psychological perspective from the Ryder Cup, what sort of things might influence the performance of the different teams in, in the Ryder Cup. And we're going to look in particular at the role of team dynamics and shared identity Yep, that's that's right. This is going to be a focus on what gives each team or either team the edge. And we want to look at each team in some detail to try to come up with a prediction of where we think the Ryder Cup might end up based on this idea of togetherness and identity. So it's so a lens. It's a lens that we've got. Sounds good. I'm looking forward to the conversation already. And before we get into that conversation, maybe you should declare an interest in this, because I know that there's a there's a bit of a, a, a trip awaiting you in the next few days. I'm actually I'm going to be at the final day. I've got a ticket for the final day. I was very lucky to get it in the ballots. That was a process that started, I think, three years ago. And about a year ago, I got a message telling me I'd got a ticket for the final day. So. The trip is booked, the flight is booked, the hotel is booked, and I will be at the Marcos Simone golf course on Sunday to watch the whole drama unfold on that final day. Very good. So we'll also perhaps be able to talk a little bit about what it's like to be a fan there or what your expectations are. And one of the things that both captains, the European captain Luke Donald, and the captain of the USA, Zach Johnson, have talked about already is the impact of the fans on the performance of the players. But before we get into that, maybe you could just tell tell our listeners a little bit about the Ryder Cup and uh, why it's an interesting competition from a team performance perspective. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question because I'm not particularly a golf fan. So why am I going to the Ryder Cup and why am I going all the way over to Rome to watch one day of golf? Well, the, the, as you suggested before, the team dynamics are fascinating. So the history of the Ryder Cup, it used to be a competition between USA and Great Britain, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And it's fairly safe to say that uh, the USA used to trounce the uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland team fairly regularly. So there was the odd the odd win the, the GB team had, but more often than not, the USA won. And it got to a point where interest was waning in this competition in the, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, the USA were winning comfortably each time. And so they wanted to freshen it up. And so the authorities decided to start to invite European players to play against the USA. So we started to get, actually back in 1979, so I think we worked out that was like 44 years ago, if my maths is correct, we started to get a competition between the USA and Europe. Now this took a while to get some traction, but by 1983 when Tony Jacklin was the European captain and Europe actually came close to winning, 
interest started to really take hold. And then we had the famous event at the Belfry in 1985 where Europe won for the first time. Sam Torrance winning the, winning the game that won the Ryder Cup for Europe. And since then, the whole competition has taken off and it's become a massive rivalry. And what fascinates me about it, it's the same format each year. So you play, you play four balls, eight, eight foursomes, eight four balls and 12 singles. So there's 28 points available. So the first team that gets to 14 and a half wins the Ryder Cup. If you're the holder of the Ryder Cup, you only need to get to 14 to retain the Ryder Cup. And the USA are the current holders, so they only need to get to 14 to retain it. So 14 all would retain it for the USA. And so this is becomes a really intriguing prospect with the traditions surrounding just the format of, of the uh, competition. Now, what I find fascinating about it apart from that those traditions just around the format is how once every two years because this is played uh, once every two years this tournament uh, alternating between the USA and Europe uh, the location and once every two years I become a European fan and I can't think of another occasion where politics aside I support Europe I don't support Europe in any other sport that I can think of. And it's a weird right. phenomenon that I become a European fan for three days. So I can't think of any other sports where there is a European team. And uh, so I, I guess it's interesting that people who in, in no other context would support a European team every two years do so. And, and in their hundreds of thousands and i know it's a very heavily watched competition on on television as well yeah so i i find the whole why, why do i watch it so I, I get caught up in the whole being a european and supporting europe for the three days of the tournament and i'm absolutely fascinated by that but also i'm fascinated by what we're going to discuss the team dynamics i'm fascinated by how on paper, historically, USA have typically had the stronger team in terms of higher ranked players in the world. And yet Europe have a better record since 1979. They've won 11 to USA's 9. I think that's right. And there's been one tie. So that's the 21 right. previous editions. We're on the 22nd edition of the new format out of 44 Ryder Cups in total. So there's a sort of pivot happening now where, where the European Europe versus USA is is now becoming the 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 tournament with the longer history or the format of the tournament with the longer history. So there's this real fascination about how Europe have managed to be so successful yet not having the best players necessarily. And there's something around how the Europeans come together as a team both as players and staff in the European team itself but also the fans. So there is a real togetherness. And I've been to one Ryder Cup before. I went to Celtic Manor or yeah, Celtic Manor in 2010 in, in Wales. And I noticed a similar thing there. To be there on the final day, I was very lucky to have a ticket for that as well. There was a real togetherness in the crowd and um, amongst the fans and with the players. In fact, it was very easy. Actually, after the uh, Ryder Cup finished and, and Europe won, I was able to go and stand next to the players and talk to them. Uh, they were very accessible. 
that's one thing I'm fascinated about golf. You can go to a golf tournament and you can be standing on one side of a rope and the best player in the world is standing literally five yards away from you on the other side of the rope playing a shot. It's a very accessible game to see yeah. these players up close. It's a really interesting thing to do. So I'm fascinated about the team dynamics and it's something I'd really like to explore with you because I know it's a real specialist subject of yours. So let's just talk a little bit about psychologically what's going on there. So one way of thinking about people is to think of us just as individuals and to focus in on our individual personality and to believe that the way that we behave is entirely governed by us as an individual, me as an individual interacting with you as an individual. So that's that was the traditional way of thinking about how people behave when they get into groups is it's just a collection of individuals. And in fact, for a long time, psychological theory about groups suggested that when people came together into groups, that actually they, they lost their sanity. There's a kind of madness of the crowd and uh, people behaving very unpredictable, often violent and, and antisocial ways. So something about a group being where a mob mentality evolves. I, I think that's in people's consciousness about what group, being part of a group means. Once we start looking at the psychology, then nothing could be further from the truth. The first thing is that to understand behaviour, we need to see people not just as individuals but also as social beings because behaviour happens in a social context. And it would be quite peculiar to think that it happens in a social context but that social context doesn't make any difference to it. So what we now know about behaviour in, in groups is that there are, there are basically two aspects to us, two aspects to our identity. There's our individual identity, which I guess can best be summed up as your personality, your personality and values, preferences. So if you imagined yourself on your own, just doing something on your own, what you would choose to do and how you chose to do it would be entirely down to you as an individual because you're on your own and you're not representing any group. There is no social context for it. So if you choose to, I don't know, go and walk your dog, then how you walk your dog and what you think about whilst you're with your dog is, is broadly driven by you as an individual. And, and when we think about competitions like golf, which is apart from at the Ryder Cup, is an individual's pursuit then you could certainly make an argument that a lot of the time that's what's affecting the thoughts and therefore the feelings and the behaviours of, of the competitors. But the other part of you is your identity that comes from belonging to groups, your membership of groups. Once you categorise yourself as belonging to a group, then you start to behave in ways which are consistent with your stereotype of what a group member does. And if we think about this historically, it makes a lot of sense because in order for people to survive, in order for humans to be successful as a sort of collaborative teamworking species, you had to be able to tell whether you were getting on with people or whether you were upsetting them. And if you upset them and you were rejected, if you didn't fit in, if you didn't toe the line, then you would, you, you would be ejected from your community and you probably wouldn't be part of the gene pool anymore so over the millennia becoming attuned to social cues from other people has been hardwired into us into our neurology 
And that means that the way that we behave now is very much determined by our perceived membership of a group. So once I categorize myself as belonging to a particular social group, I will take actions to elevate the status of that group, to see that group in a better light. And I'll modify my behavior to to try and help that to happen. Because when the group does well, I do well. I feel better about myself because the group is me. It is integrated into me. And I will also then take actions to modify my behavior to fit in so that I see myself as being accepted and so that I get this sense of togetherness and belonging. And then we could perhaps future time go into a bit more detail about neurologically what's happening there because you can you can now track that and and look at people in functional mri scanners and 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 measure the chemicals in their body and see what that sense of belonging versus the sense of exclusion does to people so that's the context of this competition and i think that the golfers are aware of that or certainly the european golfers are are aware of that and and here's a quote from uh, Rory McIlroy. Uh, he said uh, just recently, you can't replicate that feeling of playing as part of a team, winning and feeling like you've contributed in some way while doing it for other people and not just for yourself. And And I think that sums it up. This is a rare opportunity for golfers to be part of a team experience. And what the European uh, team has been very successful in doing is leveraging that by putting in place some of the sort of fundamental building blocks or beliefs that uh, drive that sense of connectedness and togetherness. Europe has been very good at, at driving that sense of identification in a way that the USA historically wasn't. A question for you on, on that, something that came up for me when you were talking. You talked about the benefits of this sort of strong sense of identity with the group. Now, sometimes, and we may have people listening to this saying, well, I'm a member of a group, but I don't really believe in it. I don't really feel like I'm a member or I don't really buy into what they're doing. It could be a work group. It could be a social group. What's the effect where there's a weak sense of identity with the group? In other words, what's the opposite? So what do we get if, if it's the opposite? Yes, one of the wonderful things about human beings is that we're dynamic and ever-changing. And if we, that's why when, when we look at taking an individualistic personality perspective, personality-driven perspective on how people behave, what they think and feel, we're usually pretty unsuccessful because we, we, we change so much. And one of the ways in which we change is that we, have, we identify with multiple groups. And depending on what the cues are around us, one of those groups will be more salient, more important than others. And that can change very quickly. Almost instantaneously, we can become aware of our membership or to the front of our mind can be the membership of a particular group and then it can be replaced by another group. So some of those groupings are not very significant to us. They're a bit transient and they aren't deeply rooted in our sense of self but they're there but we flip to them and we flit away from them very quickly Um, others are much more significant so when we look at successful um, performers athletes area that I've certainly looked at what you find is that um, the most successful athletes tend to have a very strong sense of connection with some social grouping whether that's their community whether that's their 
their race, whether that's their religion, whether it's their country, the team that they belong to. Most really successful athletes have got some real sense of connection with something beyond themselves, something that's more important than just, than just me. And so when that comes to the fore, when that group is salient, then that's when it starts to have a big impact on us. So that raises an interesting question when we look at the Ryder Cup. You've got a lot of, you've got 24 professional golfers who are applying their trade around the world with a team in tow. They'll have their caddy, they may have a coach, they may have a psychologist, they may have a nutritionist. Uh, They will have a team around them in some form. And they're playing for themselves, largely themselves and their team. Then for three days, they play this high intensity golf which is the Ryder Cup and they are there for about a week so they'll be in they'll be in Rome now they'll be doing warm-ups and so on playing playing practice rounds and they'll have probably been in Rome since about the weekend but that's one week to switch from their own individual team if you like to this group and I guess what I'm starting to think what that makes me think is how quickly can you build that sense of togetherness and does it start and i'm guessing the answer to this is it does start before you even get to the Ryder cup week so to what extent are the uh, the captains starting to foster this sense of togetherness given that actually the selections for the team only happened i think in early september so about three three or four weeks ago so it's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? To try, how do you create a, a team dynamic quickly to get the maximum effect from it? And that's maybe something that you could argue Europe have historically done well at. Yes, I think Europe have historically done well at that. And I think there may be something cultural in here as well, because I think that American culture tends to be more individualistic and American sport tends to be more individualistic. Whereas European culture is, is, most European countries have cultures which is more, somewhat more collectivist. And so maybe it's, it's in people's minds a bit more to draw on those, those sort of fundamental beliefs that lead to a sense of togetherness. But I think the, the real classic example of that happening was back at the back in 2012 when the Ryder Cup was held at Medina Country Club in Illinois and the captain for Europe at that time was Jose Maria Alazabal and anyone who who follows golf will probably remember that there was a very famous Spanish golfer called Sevi Ballesteros who was also a good friend of Alazabal both Spanish and Sevi died in 2011, taken from us much too early, having suffered from, I believe it was a brain tumour. And what happened for the team in 2012 is that Lazabel really tried to conjure what they called the spirit of the spirit of Ballesteros, the spirit of Sevi. And they talked a lot about what the competition meant to them, what it meant to Ballesteros, who had been a big uh, participant in, in the Ryder Cup. 
and they uh, built a very strong sense of cohesion and togetherness around this narrative which was to do with Ballesteros and how much this this tournament meant to them and that competition's been gone down in history as one of the most famous Ryder Cup competitions the miracle in Medina people call it because the USA team went went ahead and then Europe came back and sneaked a victory i think it was on on the last the last hole in the last match in order to win 14 and a half to 13 and a half take the rider the rider cup home with them but it was a really good example and i remember we're talking about 11 years ago now this was a case study that i wrote about this event and then how what happened in 2011 led to a narrative which played through into 2012 and set up almost like the perfect psychological conditions for strong team identification and which we know from research, our own research, many, many other studies, is very strongly associated with, with causing improved performance. What I find interesting this time around is the captain's picks for vice captains. So each team, the captain, so the team captain is the one who makes the selections of players. And a lot of that is driven by ranking points. So there are some automatic picks and then some some captain's picks for players. But the captain can also pick assistance for him because he cannot cover all the all the golf that's going on around the course, so he has some assistance. And what's interesting is the American captain who they're non playing the captains, I should state that for anyone that doesn't doesn't know that. So they're non playing. They don't play. So Zach Johnson is the USA captain and he is appointed among his team, among his staff, he's appointed Davis Love, yeah. who was the captain in, Back in 2012. 2012, the yeah. losing captain. And what's yeah. interesting is, I think I'm right in saying that in 2016, Davis Love was the captain again, and he was then the winning captain. So he's had experience of both losing and winning. And yeah. also he's appointed Steve Stricker and Jim Furyk as vice captains as support staff now Jim Furyk interestingly his only experience as captain he had an experience of captain in 2018 where he lost on European soil in a similar sort of scenario actually where it was in in France in Paris a golf course that the European players know very well or knew very well in Paris and the USA team got pretty much trounced 17 and a half to 10 and a half so there may have been there must have been a lot of lessons learnt that day, although in that three days. And then the other captain that he's picked is Steve Stricker, who, if I just do my research, Steve Stricker in was the most recent winning captain in 2021, indeed. So it's interesting that Johnson has appointed former Ryder Cup captains with experience of both winning and losing, and particularly losing a close one and also losing one on European soil. So this seems to me to be, and I haven't analysed all the captains and vice-captains from every tournament, but there seems to me to be a real effort by Zach Johnson to bring in experience of what it's like to win and the lessons we learn from losing in, in this tournament. So I just find that fascinating. So let's, let's talk a bit about what are those building blocks for identity 
And so I think a good way to think about shared identity is to look at it from the individual's perspective. So from an individual perspective, we are motivated to identify with a team or a social group when we have some strongly held fundamental beliefs about that that group. And those beliefs really go into, into five sort of clusters of beliefs. So the first belief is that there's a connection over time. So there's continuity over time. So that being a member of this group connects my past, my present and through into my future. So it has some sort of significance there. Um, the second is that being a member of this group is meaningful, that what we do is relevant, it matters, that people care, that it makes a difference, that my, my life has value and is valued when I'm a member of this team because this team has value and is, is valued. The third area is that this team is different, so we don't get excited about being part of a team which is exactly the same as other, other teams. So we need to know and we all need to have agreed about what makes us different, makes us stand out. And when you look at sports teams, that has to be something that contributes to giving them an edge on the, on the, in competitions, on the pitch, on the fairway and the putting green. So the fourth area is a belief that I belong and and really in there there's something about i know what it takes to belong so i understand that this is what i need to do to be included and i buy into that and so that's often plays out in terms of standards and values and things that you can do and things that you can't do but but having an understanding of of those kinds of behaviors and and that being a shared understanding and then the the, the final area is is confidence that we're going to be effective so believing that we have what it takes to to go out and do this to go out and win and what you find is that if those those five building blocks those five fundamentals are missing if they're completely absent then people are not motivated to identify with the group and then they're cumulative so if you have one two three four of them that's better than having none but ideally you would build a team where all five of those beliefs are in place because then you're leveraging all of the possible motivation points and and that's also in a context where every individual is coming from a slightly different position so for some people it's history it's this connection over time that gives them a strong sense of belonging but for others that really isn't the relevant thing it's it's doing something that makes a difference being meaningful for others and I think this is true for a lot of individual sports people it's just feeling that I'm part of something it's that sense of camaraderie and cohesion and belonging because I know I can say yeah I understand what it takes to be here and one of us and that feeling of being one of us gives me joy so when I look at what we're just talking about Zach Johnson doing with Davis Love, Jim Furyk, Steve Stricker, is he's making that connection over time. So win or lose, he's starting to build a narrative. So now we've got a narrative which is going all the way back to him. So they've got people there who've got personal experience right through to 2012 and there's, they're starting to build a sense of legacy about the USA team. And, and I think there was a big change in the USA team back in 2016 when they really started to think a bit more about, well, how do we come together? What, what is it that will make us behave like a team? And we can talk a bit perhaps about what are those behaviours? What is the impact of that? 
I think what could be interesting for a discussion and for our listeners particularly, because our listeners are likely to be members of teams, sports teams, work teams, social, other social groups. And it might be interesting to actually go through these five elements that you mentioned for the Ryder Cup, for the two Ryder Cup teams. And let's speculate a little bit. Obviously, we're not in there. We don't know exactly what's going on, but we can see, as you say, we can see some of the behaviours in terms of some of the selections that have been made and some of the things they've been talking about. And maybe just historically, we've got some clues as well. So maybe it might be useful to just go through each of these five and say, like you say, with the USA team, there is a sort of piece of work being done to create more of a legacy by by better connections with the past. And I wonder if we could go through it for both teams through those five elements. Would that be something we could do now? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So take the Europeans... I wonder to what extent they go all the way back to 1985 to Sam Torrance winning his game, his last match, his match to win the Ryder Cup on the 18th hole, or to what extent they are dipping just back to, say, the miracle of Medina, raising the spirit of Seve again. What, what do we see? What do we think might be going on with, the, with Europe? And what traditionally have they done around traditions, would you say? Well... I think what's interesting about this team is that it seems to have quite a lot of fresh faces in it. And so it's almost like there's a new guard. And if if I was involved in that team, what I'd be doing is right from the from the start, as soon as we're starting to look at the selection process, I'd be starting to tell a story which connects people back to those important moments in the history and how those important moments in history have been shaped so what was it about us what was the qualities what are the qualities that has made this team successful in the past and that might be around uh, being more cohesive it might be about being more collaborative it could be about being more supportive it could be about handling setbacks with more resilience and being more robust it could be about taking more risks, being more aggressive in the way that we play. There are lots of different possibilities about what is the quality from those historical experiences. Mm. But by telling that story, what I'd be doing is, is I'd be achieving two things. I'd, I'd be, first of all, putting in people's minds the idea that they are now part of something, that there is a legacy that they've inherited and a legacy that they will leave and that uh, as the all blacks talked about when you become an all black you you get a book and everyone who's played in your position before you there's a page about them in the book and then there's your name at the top of a blank page and it's a sense of well you're going to write your page in this book and the team is writing the next chapter in in the in the book about the in the story of the Ryder cup and and when you're telling a good story What's important is that your chapter follows on from previous chapters, that it makes sense in the context of the previous chapters. But what you write in your chapter, it's entirely up to you. So there's some connection, but you can also change things. So that's what I'd be doing in in the first instance. How would I do it? Well, I'd be getting people who've been involved in the Ryder Cup involved in this storytelling and and I would create experiences where I got the teams together. I would be 
beginning the narrative i'd be putting it into my press briefings i'd be when i when i got those greats from the past to come and meet with the team i'd be briefing them on what it was i wanted them to to particularly focus about so that we're building the kind of picture that's going to have maximum impact I think what's really interesting around this area of traditions, and I, I can draw on some of my own experience in sport, the the USA haven't won on European soil, haven't won the Ryder Cup on European soil since 1993. So that's 30 years. And I think they tied one, but they haven't, they haven't won. So that's a tradition that probably they want to, to change. And yeah. certainly when I worked in wheelchair rugby and we had a tradition, a past tradition of not winning a medal at any world level tournament, we consciously talked about as a group of players and, and staff, we consciously talked about leaving that particular tradition behind and yeah. writing a new legacy for ourselves around being a winning team and not a losing team. So what we see, what's really interesting in listening to the United States team talking about this and particularly Zach Johnson talking about this is they understand how hard it is to win on opposition soil and one of the reasons for this is that is the course can be prepared in a way that suits the home team or that suits yes that suits the home team so what you try to do with course preparation and neither of us are expert expert golfers here so we're a little bit out of our comfort zone talking about this but my understanding is what you try to do in course setup and course preparation is to take the big weapons away from the opposition so if the opposition let's say can drive the ball 30 yards further on average than your players can you make the fairways narrower and you make the rough longer so you take the driver out of the game. So that's what the Americans are up against. And they're actively talking about that and actively talking about how when the Ryder Cup was in Paris, how they didn't prepare well, how they didn't know the course particularly well and how that's changed this time. They've made sure their players have played the course. They made sure their players understand the course and understand how it's likely to be set up and how to adapt their game. So there seems to be, that's just one example of, there seems to be a much greater uh, focus, if you like, from the USA team on breaking this losing run on what it takes to win on away soil. And one of the things I, I read that they talked about was this is quite a hilly course and it's uh, likely to be played in temperatures around 30 degrees. Obviously, I'm going there, so I've been checking the temperature and it's going to be around 28 to 30 degrees uh, at the end of this week in Rome. So they've talked about fitness and in Ryder Cups where you're in a fairly temperate, cool climate. A player could play Saturday morning, so Friday morning, Friday afternoon, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, and Sunday, five games, and physically could cope with that. In a hot climate, in a hot climate on, on hilly terrain, maybe players can't do that. So therefore, you have to go deeper into your squad. And now the Americans are talking up how they have believed they have a deeper squad and therefore, when you go deeper into your team and, and take more of the players to play more games than they would normally play in a Ryder Cup, that's going to favour the Americans. So I'm just noticing a lot of talk around from the American camp about how they can tip the odds in their favour to break this tradition of losing. 
Yes. So what you've described there is another one of the fundamental building blocks, which is about effectiveness. And so effectiveness is about building confidence that we can do it. And and what 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 helps people to identify with a group is, is a belief that this group can be successful, however it chooses to measure success. Um, and obviously in sport, we tend to measure success by winning, although not for all teams. So there will certainly be some teams in the Premier League this year who who will measure success by not being relegated. But but in this context, it's, it, it's about winning. So uh, being confident that your captain and the people who's, who's, who are supporting the captain and the whole machinery around preparing for the Ryder Cup have left no stone unturned, that they've looked at the course, that they've thought about things like fitness, that they've given you a nutrition plan, a fitness plan, a hydration plan, all those things to make sure that you're in the best possible physical shape that you could be would build a stronger sense of commitment and and identification with the team it's it's one of the building blocks and one of the things i think is interesting and it's fascinating how davis love is doing this because this really goes right back to 2016 when davis love was captain in hazeltine so the usa before that had lost the previous three rider cups so they lost in medina they lost in 2014 in glen eagles and after that, so in 2014, they set up, or the PGA of America set up what they called a task force. And that task force led to a lot of changes in the way about they went about approaching the Ryder Cup. And Davis Love was part of that task force back in 2015, 20, 2016. And, and actually, I've got a quote from him back in 2016 before the Ryder Cup and he said that the task force has led to a culture change he said it's a new business model a new team building model to use all our veteran experience and to build a new team culture and a consistent plan for the future and that's really what he's doing now isn't he again he's building on that taking the wisdom that they've learned and looking at it from all angles so it seems to be part of a deliberate policy within within the USA PGA to, to take the Ryder Cup a lot more seriously. And of course, we've seen them be more successful. Can they win in Europe? Um, well, all those reasons that you just talked about will make it more difficult. Uh, that's home advantage for you. And there's another factor in home advantage, which is fans. And what's the impact of fans? On the, on the subject of fans, and we talked before about my passion as a European supporter for, for this three-day event coming up. What is it about that? That's What's going on for me there? What, what this sort of... I'm relating to something that seems important. I feel it's important. And I'm guessing that the players also feel the same thing, that they feel that this is important. They feel there's some relevance, some particular relevance to what they do. And it's really hard to fathom what's actually going on psychologically there but something is because i get yeah. so wrapped up in it and, and I'm, I'm just indicative of many hundreds of thousands of people that get so wrapped up in it maybe millions so it's the only time the only time when you support europe <laughs> and, and and so if we think about what is what's necessary for there to be a sense of us for there to be a sense of us there also has to be a sense of them yeah. And the thing that's constant here is that there is a them. So if you're supporting 
England, if you're supporting Great Britain, if you're supporting Europe, you're competing against them. And the them on this occasion is the USA. And if I can take you back to the Tokyo Paralympics, the them for the Great Britain wheelchair rugby team, the outgroup that you wanted to uh, beat was the USA, right? Absolutely. So us, us not being the USA, us not being beaten by the USA for Great Britain wheelchair rugby was an important part of the impact that you wanted to have. Perhaps yeah. you can tell us a bit about how that played out. Yeah, I think got there. I think that that's an interesting subject because we were. It was really us against the world back then. In, in wheelchair rugby, we, we felt that the world didn't rate us as a team, as a, as a real threat, that we were seen as a team that would often, for want of a better term, bottle it when the pressure really came on. And we knew that the USA, Japan and Australia were the three strongest teams in the world, and we were going to come up against at least two of them in the tournament. And so it was really to prove a point. We really wanted to make a statement that we that we were to be taken seriously. And so building up those games as important to us to make that statement without making those games so big that they became frightening was a really important part of the process. And I remember a lot of our team meetings were around how we can beat Japan because we were playing them in the semi-finals. So this is how we are going to beat Japan. It wasn't we could beat Japan if we played well. It was, this is the game plan. If we execute this game plan, this will beat Japan. And the same when we, and we did beat Japan and we actually, we, we won by seven clear points, which was the most number of points we'd beaten Japan by ever, I think, in a tournament. And when we came to play USA, the same process. They'd beaten us in the group game. They were old rivals. They stood between us and a gold medal. Even though we'd already guaranteed silver, that wasn't enough. It was, wasn't enough. We'd, we'd sort of broken the legacy of losing but to, because we're going to get a silver medal. But to completely cement that legacy, we needed a gold medal and the old rivals USA were standing in the way. So we wanted to win that game for multiple reasons. And again, it was about building a process and a plan and something that you said before, this idea of a belief of how we're going to win. So we had a game plan right. and we knew, again, if we executed it well, we would win that game. And that's exactly what happened yeah, in the fourth quarter. We were just the stronger team and we stuck to our plan better and eventually won the game by three points, I think. So, yeah, so which, that comp- which was a fabulous achievement. And just to not brush over it too quickly, was a rare occasion for Great Britain to win a dynamic team sport uh, gold medal in an Olympic or Paralympic competition. And also meant that that team was um, nominated for the Sports Personality of the Year um, team award. Um, so it really got a huge amount of um, public recognition as, as well as within the sport and uh, Paralympic community. And I think we lost that Team of the Year award to a team. I can't remember which team it was now, but the wheelchair rugby players, if any of them are listening, they'll remind me. But a team that lost. So we were a winning team and we lost to a losing team. But I hope. Probably... Probably the England football team or someone like that. <laughs> it probably was. Don't, don't win so, so much. So that's interesting, isn't it? How we. So I think of... that happens for fans too. 
Mm. Coming back to your point, I think yeah. that what happens is that you have a narrative in your mind, which is about the us here. The us mm. has shifted, and as I said, we're dynamic and we're able to create and, and, and switch our allegiance to different social categories. But the prerequisite for us to be able to do that is we have to know what we stand for and we have to know what they stand for. And without a them, there can't be an us. Mm. And we see this in populist politics. So what what populist politicians do is they create an other they other people they create an outgroup the enemy and and without that sense of the enemy you can't create a sense of us now what populist politicians do is then they fail to define what us stands for and what us is all about they keep that really really vague because then they don't disenfranchise anyone it's all about creating a sense of other it's all about creating a sense of threat and danger from the other well when you look in a sporting context that's clearly not enough and if you people were to look at it in from a performance context they'd look at populist countries and they'd say it's not enough because they don't perform well because you in order to drive performance you also need to have some beliefs about what do we need to do together to be successful however we define success mm. and, and and so that's some of the other fundamental beliefs that happen what's really interesting about the Ryder Cup when you've sort of talked about it like that is this is definitely it's very polarizing you either support Europe or you support USA. I suppose the third option is you're not interested in golf and you don't really pay any attention right, to it. But, yeah. <laughs> but you either support yeah. you support one of those two teams. Now, you could argue in football the same thing happens, right? There's there's England, say, playing Italy in football, and you you might be an England supporter, you might be an Italian supporter, and that's also very polarizing. But also what's going on in football is in the same tournament there are other teams. There might be Poland playing Germany or Holland playing Belgium or something like that and so there's other groups involved in in their sort of partisan view of the sport in the Ryder Cup there are no other teams there's only two that's it yeah that's your choice yeah and so this sort of polarization this sort of I'm either European or I'm American and I'm definitely not American so therefore I'm European is is is, feels to be a very strong driver a very strong driving force to feel like I belong to that group. Yes, and, and it's fleeting. It's a mm. temporary group. Mm. And, and we see this. So what will happen is that people will arrive there and we'll start to see group behaviour amongst the crowds, 300, 400,000 people who, yeah. who attend over the three days, whatever the number is. You'll start to see emergent group behaviour. So that will emerge. It will be very pro-social it will be about creating a good time for the supporters and it'll be about supporting their team. And that does have a positive impact. We see it when the Europeans go to the USA and we see it when the, the USA come here. Is there's a very partisan crowd. But from the fan experience, I know that you're a lifelong West Ham supporter. That's a different kind of fandom. That's mm. a being a diehard fan mm. where it's really bone deep. Whereas this will, will come in, it'll feel great for a while and then it'll, it'll move on. But as I say, that's, we're dynamic in, in our social affiliations and interactions and that's what makes us so wonderfully interesting. And it's really interesting. Tom Watson commented on this and they said, he said this, he said, they, the Europeans, have a very different way of doing it that's very unifying within their teams. He said, there's all the singing and the coordinated support 
And all the European players respond to that very positively. It's a football mentality where the fans are all in as investing in their team. And so that, that's interesting that he's recognised that. He's recognised the power of the, of the group, the power of not just the individual team, but the, the supporters as well. And he should know because he was captain back in uh, Glen Eagles in 2014 when the USA lost 16.5 to 11.5. Mm. And I think that was a story again of the USA underperforming because I think it takes, it takes them by surprise. I think that kind of behaviour, that kind of support is not, not so prevalent in their culture. And obviously you do get strong affiliations towards sports within the USA as the same as you do everywhere else. Yeah. But but perhaps it's, it plays out slightly differently in, in golf. What about the other factors that you talked about? What, one that intrigues me is this sort of, this idea of we're different, we're not like other teams. Now, basically, you've got two teams of golfers, so they're pretty much the same. They've all got bags of clubs and they hit balls and they dress fairly yeah. similarly, although in different colours. But how can, yeah. how can you differentiate and create, create a uniqueness there? Right, so I suppose you can think about what's going to give us a unique edge from, from different perspectives. So one way would be to say, well, we're going to be the team that are fantastic at hitting down a narrow fairway. So we're very accurate with our drivers, and that's what's going to differentiate us. And by the way, we've picked this course, which has got very narrow fairways. It's got very deep rough. Uh, if you get it slightly wrong, you're in big trouble. There's no coming back from that. And so that's what's going to differentiate us is our ability to, to drive from the tee and then our second shots. That would be one way. And that's, so that's a sort of tactical, technical edge that you're gaining. But when you are pulling together an international team such as or, or even a national team, of course, you can't influence that. You could look at the players that you have and you could say, oh, actually, that just by chance, that's it. But you don't get the chance to coach them. It's not like you're a club team which has got players together week after week, year after year, where we can start to mould them, develop skills which are necessary for our our style of play. So the alternative to that is to think about are there other qualities that you could have that will differentiate you? So that might be that we're more supportive. It might be that we will take more risks. It might be that we create a psychologically safe environment uh, for each other. It might be that we're more helpful. And so if, if you pick a quality and, and you emphasize that and you make that part of your narrative then that can start to come to fruition. And I can give you an example from, from my experiences with the Great Britain Speedway team. So Speedway, like golf, is an individual sport. And week in, week out, the racers who compete for in the Great Britain team race against each other. So they are competitors. And when I first became involved with the Great Britain Speedway team, uh, we'd arrive at a, a Great Britain meeting and no one would share anything. I mean, they didn't really want to talk to each other. They wanted to keep their secrets because this was just one event amongst very many other events. Uh, and they knew that a week later they'd be back racing against each other. So they didn't want to give too much away. And and we've been working away at that. We've been trying to change the narrative so that now at our last World Cup meeting where we, we picked up a silver medal, 
there was actually a lot of collaboration. There was a lot of sharing and there was a lot of helpfulness. There was a lot of sharing about mechanical setups. There was a lot of sharing about tactics for riding that particular racing track. There was a lot of sharing, even about physical equipment, sharing engines in order to put the team first, to put us first. And that's because what we've done, and, and by the way, this isn't done to the athletes. This is done with the athletes in a collaborative um, long-term process what we've done is created a sense of us which is built around this matters this is an opportunity to be world champions and represent your country and that's a very very unique position and you could be world champion on your own but you'll never be able to do it representing your country unless you're prepared to share unless you're beha- prepared to behave differently to how you would when you're representing yourself and that's exactly true for the Ryder Cup and actually funnily enough when we started on this journey in Speedway one of our reference points is what had happened with the European team um, in the Ryder Cup and we talk about the miracle of Medina because I think that the parallels are really 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 close and you did achieve your goal right Right, so we got a we we got a a gold medal. We became world champions, and since then we've had two silver medals. And once we achieved our first goal, which was to become world champions, our second goal was to become a dominant force in international motorsport. And we're on that journey. We're not there yet. And the wonderful thing about being a dominant sport is, of course, we we can't really ascribe that to ourselves. So it has to be that we're creating a a, a legacy which people will look back on. And those who judge us, whether that's fans or pundits or future riders, will look back at this era and they'll say, yeah, that, that was the team that became dominant. And, another and that's what's happened with the Ryder Cup, isn't it? Yeah. With Europe. They have become the dominant force. And, and the Americans are the underdogs in their own minds and they're playing catch-up. Mm. What kind of stuff does that do inside their heads, I wonder? Interesting, yeah. But I just again, not to brush over your achievement, another fantastic achievement that you had, great success that you you were part of. And I think some of the things you talked about, just just to give our listeners something to maybe look look out for, you talked about some of the behaviours around helping each other, and maybe that goes into the sort of belonging part of this. About I know what it takes to belong. This is what it takes to be included, and I buy into that. I think that's something you said earlier. And if it takes sharing of knowledge and, and helping my my teammate, my teammate who a week ago was my opponent, that's the switch yeah. that these teams are making because these players are playing against each other for 11 and a half months of the year. And then for one week, they come together and they're teammates. And I'm wondering what we could perhaps look out for in the tournament and thinking back to past Ryder Cups, simple things like, we talked about this before the podcast, didn't we, Jeremy? Like how the players walk down the fairway having hit their tee shot. Are they yeah. talking, are they walking along together, chatting, analysing the shot, or maybe relaxing and laughing and joking? Are they walking separately? When somebody's over a putt, is their teammate helping them lining it up, line it up? Does, do they want their teammate to help them line it up, or are they quite happy to do it on their own? What if somebody misses a gettable putt? What's the reaction of, say, the teammate and the teammate's caddy at that moment in time? What's the reaction of the vice captain watching on the sidelines? Are they throwing their head up in disgust or despair? Or are they keeping cool and supportive? 
these kinds of behaviours, and there may be others, are sorts, the sorts of things that maybe anyone could look out for to see the sense of team cohesion. It gives us a little window into what might be going on. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I completely agree. And all those are really good examples. I think we can also listen to the language that, that people are using. So if, if people, if, if the players and, and anyone involved in the team is is talking about we and us all of the time, mm. then that suggests that they have internalized. We don't tend to consciously pick to talk about me or I did this, I did that versus we. It tends to be subconscious. And so it's telling us something about where they're, their mind frame is at that time, their mindset is at that time. And so we know that when the language of, of we and us is used, that that's a, a good indicator of a shared identity. Mm. And so we could, I would expect to see exactly what you described uh, once the golfers are out on the, out on, on, on the course. I would expect to see signs of collaboration between their caddies and their support team. I would expect to see smiles. I would expect to see enthusiasm. I would expect to see positive interaction with the crowd. I think all of those are indicators that the players are feeling comfortable and safe. And why does it matter? Because, well, let's let's think about how this Ryder Cup could go. So if we looked at the last Ryder Cup, the USA team pulled out into the lead very early on and the the European team never looked like coming back. So 19, 1999. So it was all over before the third day. And so we've got a factor here, which is how good are the golfers? And and we should never <laughs> discount that from, from what's going on here. So if if you've got the majority of the best golfers in your team, then the chances are you'll win. So we're then looking for those kind of minnows defeating the, 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 the big team events that that people love so much in in sport and and signs of that but let's just imagine for a moment that it's not like that like that so that on day one it's pretty close and as we go through day two it's pretty close so then what I'd be looking at if I was a gambling person I'd be looking at well what am I seeing in terms of behavior and nonverbal behavior because that will give me indicators of how people are likely to perform when the pressure rises and uh, so as we're moving into the final day and we're looking at the singles, um, uh, you know, there's an order of players. So captains decide whether they put their strongest players out so that they can run up a lead, whether they put them out first or whether they save their stronger players until later and, and back their, their, their less experienced, less strong players. So there's a whole tactical play about, about the teams and we see that play out on the, the Saturday evening as to what the tactics are. But then how people perform, the pressure will start to mount. If it's close, the pressure will start to mount. It's absolutely undeniable. Mm. Now, I am going to respond to that pressure much better if I'm not afraid of the appraisal of my teammates. If I feel that I've got all that support from my teammates and that what I'm doing will be judged well, even if I lose, my performance will be judged well because I did what we agreed, because I was a good representative of us. I was one of us. And that will take the pressure away from me and enable me to feel good. And of course, if it's going my way, if I'm playing well, I'm going to feel even better. And then, then I see the interaction with the crowds and and whipping up the support and so on and and as you quoted for tom watson earlier 
he talked about how in Glen Eagles it got to him that he became stuck that the fear got to him and he became overwhelmed and he played less well well if you're a European fan going to Rome that's your job you need to put the pressure onto the USA team you need to do that by really making yourself noisy cheer sing be passionate and and then we'll see how resilient uh, that the USA team are if it's close so Jeremy prediction what do you think with all your vast golfing knowledge <laughs> what do you think now there, there, there's already a contradiction isn't there <laughs> no but but from a so team... I, I have to I, I've, I've never played golf I've never picked up a golf club I, I I but I like watching big sporting occasions and the Ryder Cup is one of those big sporting occasions so I'll definitely be watching it in between watching the the Rugby World Cup and my prediction I think the USA could do it. And the reason for that is that uh, I think as per usual, they have the higher ranked players. So they come in and technically they should be a little bit stronger. But I also think that they've got their preparation right from, from what I've read. It sounds like they have created this sense of teamship and, and collaboration and belonging and togetherness. Now, I might change my mind very quickly on day one. And I might even change my mind once they've arrived and I see what's happening in their press conferences because I think you can tell. We never know the subplot. No. And we've seen this with lots of sports teams that you think it all looks great from what's projected to the press, but but behind the scenes, it's quite a different story. And I'm sure we'll talk about the Rugby World Cup again soon and perhaps we can talk about Australian team there. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll do that how, one. How their sense of togetherness is missing. I, I think this one's going to be close. Yours? Yeah, I think this is yeah. going to be close. I think we've got two great captains in Zach Johnson and Luke Donald. I think they both understand the tournament really well, both experiencing the tournament, both brought in assistants who have got a lot of background knowledge and create that sort of sense of tradition, that link with the past and an understanding of how to win. I think the the Europeans definitely have some good golfers. They have some top some of the top golfers in the world playing. The depth of the USA team may be better. And that may that may be a factor. The course setup is going to be another factor. I think Zach Johnson's pick of Justin Thomas is really interesting. A player out of form who really on form should not have been picked, but who is a is somebody who gets into the Ryder Cup and likes and likes the format. So right. when you start doing that, when you start picking those types of players and and picking players that you know make good pairings, because the as I said before, the uh, captain has some picks to make as well as the players that automatically qualify, then you might be onto something. Now Europe interesting team because we've lost some players to live golf so some of the Ryder Cup stalwarts you might call them uh, Polt, Westwood and Garcia are not in the team because they played live golf and they therefore because they renounced their European tour membership they weren't able to to be selected so that means a, a bunch of younger players have qualified 
Four rookies apiece, by the way, so it's not like the Europe have more rookies than USA. Both teams are carrying four rookies. And it's really going to be about how much those new newer players to the tournament capture the essence of this tournament and capture the and get into the team dynamics that we've discussed before. And I think it's on a knife edge. I think it could go either way. Yeah. I think the USA could win this one because I think they've really thought about how do you win on away soil. But then to counter that, the Europeans will set up the course to, to take their weapons away. And it will come down to probably, if, if other things are equal, if the team dynamics are evened out, it will come down to who, who handles the pressure the best. And as you say, yeah. the support that the team can give each other, that probably the team that supports each other the best are, are going to win. And so watch out for yeah. those behaviours, everyone. Look, look for what you're hearing in interviews. Look for behaviours around the course. And it would be great to talk about this again after the Ryder Cup to see what we noticed and see whether some of the things we talked about were in evidence uh, for uh, and how that helped the winners to win and the losers to lose. Great. Well, on that note, uh, and I think that's an excellent thing for, for listeners to do and, and for us to do as well. I hope you have a great time over in Rome. I'm very jealous. And perhaps we should wrap up and, and look forward to talking about this again in a week or two's time. Yeah, looking forward to it. OK, thank you very much. Goodbye. Excellent. Thanks. Thanks, everybody, for listening.